Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to tell you about something called Chat GPT. Now, I, I'll we'll find out what maybe what the GPT means. Doesn't really matter, I suppose. Essentially, what this is, it's an artificial intelligence program that will write essays, among other things. But not just, as I said in the before uh, the break, not just it seems in ways that we've had before, where you could, yeah, there were some programs where you could get this stuff done, but they were easy enough for educators to track down whether you were plagiarizing. The, this one seems to be taking next level steps so that, you know, a student potentially could use this and write an essay and it would be very difficult other than for, for, a, for a teacher to know they're cheating, other than perhaps the fact that the student is not good at writing and suddenly their essay looks pretty good. Maybe that would be a hint. But nonetheless, there are those in the education system who are raising some alarm bells about this one. Natalie Wexler is an education writer. She's the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. She is the co-author of a write, of The Writing Revolution, A Guide to Advancing Thinking Through Writing in All Subjects and Grades. Um, she is widely considered one of North America's leading authorities on literacy, and she is joining us now. Natalie, thanks for this. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I, I hear about this, and I mean, I also write for the newspaper, so I feel passionately about the idea of writing and people putting their unique stamp into their words. It's, uh, to me, it's a really important thing, but I hear about this and I think, is this just going to mark the end for many people of ever having to learn how to write? Because you can just put your information into something and it turns it out for you now. Well, I certainly hope not, because um, I think... A lot of the commentary has sort of missed what writing really is all about. It's not not just a skill that, you know, is sort of bothersome and you can sort of subcontract it out to a computer to do it for you and you're good to go. Because ideally, writing actually, in writing, you have to know what you're writing about. But in the process of writing you're actually deepening and expanding that knowledge and maybe coming to new insights. And, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of, of putting down on paper what you already know. It is actually, I mean, it has been found, for example, that when students write about the content they're learning in, you know, not just English, but science, social studies, math, they actually understand and retain that information better. So, to just uh, stop assigning writing, and I mean, we haven't been doing a great job of teaching it, but to even stop trying to teach it would be a, a real disaster, and I think would really um, affect, negatively affect students' learning ability and, and their ability to understand uh, complex text if they're trying to read it. But as I, as you're even as you're talking, and as I'm thinking about this concept, I'm I'm sort of imagining that we may see a, a a splitting of the road here because those who are good in school, those who are able to figure out the topics and express themselves, are probably still going to write things themselves. They're probably not going to cheat. They're not going to use this, and they will then get better at all those things. And those who aren't so good at it will maybe be tempted to use something like this. And then we'll fall further behind. It seems like we could see two sides very much splitting here in the education system. Yeah, which would just be a continuation of the trends that we have been seeing in reading and writing where, you know, the, there's a, a widening gap between high achievers and low achievers. But I, I think the way around this, I, I don't know that there's any way to prevent 
high school and college students from taking advantage of something like chat GPT. But if we started teaching writing more effectively in elementary school and really got kids to understand how to construct complex sentences, how to outline paragraphs and essays, uh, they would at least have those skills under their belt. They might be more likely to use them rather than something like ChatGPT at higher grade levels. But even if they did use ChatGPT, they would at least have had the ben- some of the benefits of, of learning to write. And if their power goes out, they would still be able to write something. But in school already, we already allow now, say, you know, your iPhone, students have iPhones. And the reason often is sometimes you need to look online to find something out for your class. But often I, I hear the explanation, well, I need to have a calculator handy. So we've already essentially said, well, I don't need to necessarily learn the times tables because I've got technology that can do that for me. Why bother? So if we now have a program in the English, in the writing side, that for, you know, in a similar way can do it for us, why bother with it? Well, as I said, I mean, I don't think it is analogous to using a calculator. Maybe when you're talking about something like spell check for spelling, um, you know, that's maybe more like a calculator. But even I think math teachers would say, even if you have used a calculator, you should have some understanding of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, you know, so that you have no, maybe your calculator, maybe you hit the wrong button and it comes up with a completely wrong answer. You should be able to tell that. Mm. But I think even more so with writing, um, it's, these are not just sort of mechanical skills. They, they are to some extent, but they're also, uh, you know, really fundamental components of learning and of becoming literate. And we could have kids turning in essays that they themselves can either read nor understand, which, uh, you know, that's not furthering their education uh, in any meaningful sense. Do we, okay, I don't mean to be too cynical or too pessimistic, but do you believe that most students, and I remember what I was like in high school, so I'm, you know, fingers are pointed back at me here when I'm asking this question, but do you believe that most students, if they know that they have a tool that would allow them to not have to do all the work, do you think most students are going to say, oh, but I would prefer to do the work? Or are we looking at something where, whether we like it or not, this is going to become a huge problem? Well, I, it, I think it's hard to say. Um, I, I, you know, I think uh, many students will probably see this as something that is not kosher, you know, is, is really um, not something they should be doing. But uh, inevitably, some will take advantage of it. And I think... Teachers, you know, have to be in, in, vigilant as, as best they can be. I think one way to do that is maybe sometimes have kids write in class and monitor what mm. they're using. And then if there's a huge discrepancy between what they turn out when they're writing in class and what they hand in as homework, you know, you might suspect that something is up. Do you, do you think that there's a chance or any possibility that teachers throw up their hands here? And and I love your idea there. Like, okay, we're going to do this, but half of every class for the next two weeks is going to be spent writing your essay. You can't do it at home. That would be fascinating. But uh, I don't know if everyone's going to do that. So do you think teachers then are going to say, I I don't know how to teach this anymore. If If I'm just giving this assignment and believing that some of them are just doing this, why bother? Is there a risk of what might happen to English or writing classes in school? Well, I think the the reality is that right now, 
most teachers don't really know how to teach writing well. It's not their fault. They haven't gotten good training in it, and they haven't got good instructional materials to help them. And I also think that there are many of them, especially in schools serving lower income populations from less educated families, they're not assigning very much writing right now uh, because they, I mean, uh, secondary teachers, especially they're expected to assign longer pieces of writing, but they get back papers that they actually can't understand and they don't know where to begin in correcting those papers. So they just assign the bare minimum of writing. So I don't know, actually, you know, when you're talking about high poverty schools, I'm not sure this is really going to make that much difference because I don't think teachers are either teaching or assigning much writing anyway. Uh, but they should be. And there is a way there, there, you know, there are ways to teach writing effectively. For example, beginning at the sentence level, teaching kids explicitly how to construct sentences. Generally, teachers don't do that, um, and it's it's a huge problem because there are many kids at high school, in high school or even college, who never learned how to construct a good sentence. You know, somebody sent in a text jokingly saying, how do we know Natalie is saying this herself and this is not AI? And I mean, it was, but, <laughs> but, but to the point, you have written books about this, and I do wonder... Uh, you didn't know, uh, I mean, I didn't give you any of the questions that we were going to talk about. I didn't know what we were going to talk about today, except for the general topic. If you had not written and you had not spent the time going over those concepts and working them through the writing process, would you feel as comfortable talking about these things now down the road? Of course not. I mean, I you know, it's, it's uh, not just a question of, as I said, putting, you know, all your thoughts into words, it's you, you, the process of putting thoughts into words, you know, deepens those thoughts. You have to understand what you're talking about. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there are uses conceivably for something like chat GPT. I think that teachers could use them for coming up with activities, but I, I don't think that they're going to be, I think that there are some people who say, well, you could have students, you know, get something out of chat GPT and then they could improve that and they could just focus on developing their voice and sort of editing this uh, thing that, the, that the, the bot has produced. But that's not really going to teach them how to express themselves, how to really uh, think analytically about the material. It's more just sort of editing and they may not have the, the knowledge to even do that. Yeah, and I, and I think that a lot of them would be intimidated to try and fix what they already think sounds pretty good. So, um, yeah, it, it is, it's an interesting one. Uh, Natalie, and by the way, this is, uh, I read today that Microsoft, I think, is bidding to buy this or buy a huge chunk of it. So we know that it's not going to be hidden away. It's going to be very, people are going to know about this before too long if they don't already. Uh, Natalie Wexler, really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about this today. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Through the day, I was noticing some tweets from my next guest today talking about municipal taxes and city of Hamilton taxes and that kind of thing. And one of them, and we'll get to the other stuff in a second, one of them, though, the, the nub of the issue, as it were, uh, was this tweet. It says, Hamilton Council is considering a 5.4% tax increase for 2023, less than inflation, while maintaining current services and adding significant new strategic investments in infrastructure, paramedics, transit, climate change, housing, long-term care, fire, and accessibility. 5.4%. 
Are we happy with the trade-off of higher tax increase for more programs? Let's bring in Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who is the author of that. Uh, Councillor, thanks for this today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I'm so happy to talk about taxes with you. Well, you know what? It's always the happiest topic of all for everyone. I understand that. Um, this is a tricky time, though, because, and I, I don't think you would dispute that, with inflation and with mortgage rates going up and with food prices going up and with EI premiums going up and with uh, carbon taxes going up and with everything going up, we're now having, I think this would be our largest tax increase in decades, maybe here in the city. Is this going to be something people are going to be okay with? If this happens, if this passes, assuming it goes through. Yeah, no, no question. Taxes is a serious topic. Nobody likes paying taxes, myself included. Uh, but we do recognize that uh, our, our municipal taxes, our property taxes do pay for very important city services that we rely on. So I think just to start, for a municipality, how we set our tax rate is basically we have two sides of the equation. We have uh, you know, our, our spending, our investments, and then we have our income side. And at the end of the year, those two sides have to be equal. Now, I'm sure everybody knows that uh, when you go to the grocery store, things are more expensive right now. And that's the same for municipalities like the city of Hamilton. The services that we provide are more expensive, which means that at the end of the year, um, in order to balance those two sides of the equation, uh, we do have to raise taxes in, in some way in order to maintain the services that we provide. Um, in Hamilton, I, I think we, we have to be, you know, really cautious and uh, really be careful about when we, we're talking about uh, the tax rates that we are expecting residents to pay, uh, because historically our city has a lower than average income level. So it's, it's, more difficult in the city of Hamilton to, to, for Hamilton residents to meet that burden than it might be in uh, some of our comparative municipalities. But over the past 10 years, uh, you know, the city of Hamilton has actually done really well in that our average tax increases have been either at or slightly below the rate of inflation, which effectively means that we haven't actually uh, increased taxes in terms of, uh, you know, the, the services that we provide. One of the, maybe the, I'm not sure, but one of certainly the largest areas where the tax money goes is in salaries, benefits, it's in staffing. Um, Ten years ago, our budget was $629 million to pay our employees. Uh, last year, the number was $873 million. We've gone up by a quarter of a billion dollars in increase just in paying our people in the span of a decade. And that's going to keep going up. It, are we not on a cycle where we're going to be just getting huger and huger and huger tax increases just to pay for the people that we employ? I think that's an excellent point. Um, our, our staff, uh, city staff, are part of a, bi a big part of our city budgets. Um, we just heard from uh, the police chief today. We're talking about the police budget, which is the single biggest line item in the city of Hamilton. And uh, for staffing for the police budget, 1% of the police budget is equal to 19 uh, police officers. Um, so when we're talking about, you know, those, those staffing inputs, um, we also had a report from uh, the economist for uh, um, one of the chief Canadian economists that talked about those increases in, uh, in staffing costs for that municipalities and all public sector institutions are facing in Ontario. Um, and it is a significant driver. Some of that we have control over, some of it we don't, that are their union contracts. Uh, 
Um, and have they been signed yet, by the way, John Paul? Because I know all, most of the unions in the city, they expired on December 31st. Is this 5.4% factoring in the increases that are going to be coming, or could that be on top of this? I believe that would be in the 2024 budget because those contracts are still under negotiation right now. You're, you're absolutely right. There are a number that are, are currently being uh, negotiated. Um, but, you know, part of the, the issue for municipalities as well is that we only have legislative control over about half of our budget. So 46% is controlled by provincial regulation, and then 54% is up to the discretion of council. And so what that means is if you want to save a dollar off of the levy, um, you actually have to find $2 in savings out of the portion of the budget that you have control of. So I think, you know, residents can appreciate that 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 makes the the, um, you know, the decisions before council that much more difficult. And just to put that into perspective for scale, if in 2023 we wanted to have a zero percent tax increase, we would have to cut about $10 million of services off of our, our 2023 budget. So that would be things like roads and sidewalk maintenance, uh, waste management, parks, fire service, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's, you know, I think I think a lot of people would say, no, I don't really want to see a lot of things cut. At the same time, when we're facing tax increases at a difficult time for a lot of people, uh, you point out in your tweet here, while we're adding significant new strategic investments in infrastructure, paramedics, transit, climate change, housing, long-term care, fire and accessibility, is it, is it the right time to be putting more spending into things? I, I think our priorities of, as a municipality, um, uh, you know, they change every year. And again, historically, I think that we've been very efficient with our tax rates to, to keep it around inflation. And even the 5.4%, while it is, uh, you know, very high, no question about that, it is below the current year-over-year -year rate of inflation for 2023. So again, effectively, we're actually um, spending less. Even at the same time, we are making investments. Uh, one of the biggest ones is in asset management. That's an additional $5 million pressure for 2023. And that is um, making sure that we have a strategic approach to infrastructure management, things like roads and sidewalks and potholes. Um, so those are very important um, investments that we're making as, as a city. And things like asset management, you know, the whole point of it is to save money in the long term, but you still have to make those upfront investments. Just before we go, um, you just mentioned potholes and things like that. We know this week the story about the latest uh, sewer situation. Uh, a lot of people are, have been saying, you know, this is an old city. Part of the city is an old city, and who knows what we're going to find if things start to get dug up. We're going to, at some point, need huge money to go into infrastructure. And we also now have LRT looming as well, and we still don't know what the LRT operating cost is going to be for the city. Uh, 5.4%, is this going to become the new norm because all these things are waiting to be needed to be done in the future? You raise an excellent point about Hamilton being an older city. Um, historically, our city was built on commercial and industrial tax base. And that when that collapsed, all of that tax base got shifted to residential. So that means that 
every year there is a, a very unfair burden on residential taxpayers. And the only way that we can get out of that hole is by increasing our, our new commercial and industrial tax base. And I think there are some very exciting projects on the horizon. 23,000 new jobs in the redevelopment of the Stelco lands is, is a massive one. Uh, but also LRT, as you mentioned, being a commercial investment driver along that corridor to help take that burden away from residential taxpayers and put it on new commercial growth. Uh, we'll be talking more about this, uh, I know, in the days ahead. John Paul Danka, Ward 8 Councillor, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH just got off the air. Bubba, how are you today? Were you talking about child actors or was that that, that Adam Rich? The, is that what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, he died this week. Yeah, that, that was quite a thing. But no, and I, I'm I like, think I, I heard th- you at the tail end there. But Gary Coleman died like 12 years ago. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and, but even then, like, even it just, like, you don't think of these people for a long time because they're from your childhood. And then all of a sudden you see this announcement and you go, man, I'm old if he's already dead. Well, just, yeah, and I Emmanuel know he had Lewis. health issues and stuff. Oh, yeah, he did for a long, long time. But you, you brought up Emmanuel Lewis, who, who I actually, in my last trip down to the Bahamas, <laughs> ran into on the poker table. Um, <laughs> he, he, he's like 51. I know. And Emmanuel, it was a funny story. I was going into Ancaster Silver City one day and Emmanuel Lewis is on the stairs at Ancaster Silver City. I swear to you. And I'm like, am I having a hallucination? <laughs> Why I'd be imagining Emmanuel Lewis? I don't know. But apparently he had connections with, uh, with some people on Six Nations. And was friends and occasionally was up in this area. And I'm walking going, I think I'm, I must be having a stroke. I see Emmanuel Lewis in front of me. <laughs> but yeah, actually, apparently it was it, him. That wasn't, that wasn't, I mean, it, William, I, I actually talked to him when I, in the Bahamas there. He actually is in Canada quite a bit. And you were yeah. correct on, on, on the location of where he, he actually has a, a residence there. But if you're not expecting it. Yeah, again, it's like, okay, I, I, I have not been drinking. As far as I know, nobody put any drugs into my food. Uh, I'm, <laughs> uh, what, anyway. Uh, hey, speaking of famous people, it was um, a month ago, a month and a half, almost two months ago that the Hamilton Ticats made a trade to get Bo Levi Mitchell's rights. They haven't got Bo Levi Mitchell, technically. They've got the rights to negotiate with him before free agency opens for everyone on February the 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, all you free agents. Are the Ticats going to sign this guy? I mean, I don't blame him. I just answered your question in a roundabout way. I don't blame him for saying that he's going to explore his options. Um, as a free agent, I think that's the whole idea that you get a, you get the feels for for who wants you and what they're going to pay you. But I'm going to tell you this, based on a couple of things here, that I'm not sure that the Tiger Cats are sold on their current quarterbacking situation, and Clearly. the fact that the Grey Cup is in Hamilton this for the 2023 season, um, you've got to make a splash. Uh, with your fans. And I think there is a fan base that right now that was clearly split over should they kept, have kept Jeremiah Masoli over Dane Evans. But here you are with a future hall opportunity, a future Hall of Famer who's got a chip on his shoulder, right? Has had his job taken away from a young kid. And I think, you know, rightfully so, um, but his time had come to an end in Calgary. 
And what do we say about these guys? Guys like Tom Brady, who, you know, did all they could. MVP seasons, winning championships. Very, very close and similar to Bo Levi Mitchell. Maybe not the number, but it has established, established himself as one of the better CFL quarterbacks of all time. Here he is with an opportunity to imagine this. Just extend the point. Imagine being the quarterback who gets Hamilton their first Grey Cup victory since 1999. You're an automatic legend. Uh, no, I, I don't doubt. I don't dispute that. I, I think you're you're probably right. I mean, we've said this for a long time about um, uh, you know if, if you're the Leafs players who finally win your team a championship. If you were a member of the Chicago Cubs who finally ended that drought, um, you're absolutely right. I don't know that the Ticats are in quite the same level as those other two, but it, we're we're starting to get close. We're, well, it, we're in the, terms of CFL legendary legends, yes. I, I would have to put him there because he's a Hall of oh. Famer as it is right now. And if he ends that drought, I mean, come on. I mean, I think I think we can all be honest with each other here because we're we're Hamilton guys, we're we're Ticats guys, and in a nine team league and sometimes ten, the Tiger Cats have this incredibly awful drought. In oh, fact, yeah. Toronto, Toronto have won what three Grey Cups, you know, where people don't even care, have won three Grey Cups in what I think the last eleven years. It just doesn't yeah, seem right. It's it's a it's a it is a big hefty dose of salt into a gaping wound every time they do too. I mean it's of all the teams if you're a Ticat fan, of all the teams to win, it's not even just because you hate the Argos because you've got this rivalry. It's you hate the Argos because you've got this rivalry and nobody in Toronto gives a whoop. So just to make it worse, they have to be the ones to win. But they do. You're right. They win it. They. When was the last time? I remember at the Grey Cup this year, they had pointed out, like, I can't remember the last time the Ty- the, the Argos lost the Grey Cup. They're like 7-0 and or something in their last seven. It's crazy the I number think, they've got. I think you got to go back to the early 1980s. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So, all right. So the the, the Bo Levi Mitchell. Back to this. The Bo Levi Mitchell. I agree with the concept that you want to have a splash for the Grey Cup here this year. I agree with that, and I also agree with you that the team is clearly, clearly not sure about their quarterbacking situation. I mean, Dane Evans, when they made this trade for Bo Levi's rights, put out a, an Instagram post that looked like he was packing up and you know heading out westward bound or something like he looked like he was heading on the the old you know caravan heading west but um the issue i think that the tie cats have and it's like any team now in a salary cap can you afford to pay bo levi mitchell enormous money and i don't know if he's going to demand enormous money but i don't think he's also going to play for a philanthropic thing um can you afford to pay him huge money knowing that that means you're going to be weaker in some other areas because you're going to have to cut back some places. Yeah, I think that's the reality of the situation. But it's really, when you look at it, not that far off. Because when the Tiger Cats did make that decision to go to Dane Evans over Jeremiah Mastoli, who at the time was making the big money, um, Evans was signed to a contract which was reportedly in the four hundred to $450,000 category. I would think, you know, and I know Steve Milton of the Hamilton Spectator kind of, kind of are, are, are aligned on this. I think it's going to take six hundred thousand dollars to get him here. I don't see any other team that can afford to pay him other than the Tiger Cats in this situation. 
Um, the Tiger Cats also, even though they have a lot of free agents to re-sign or sign, they, they always got like young players. So maybe they're not going to demand the same amount that maybe some other veteran teams like the Winnipeg Blue Bombers w- would be asking for. Um, let, me, let me throw another one at you then. Remember in, I think it was, to, boy, I don't know what year, 2014? I'm mm-hmm. thinking 13, 14, 15, something in there. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders, did they not win the Grey Cup, but then we discovered after that they had exceeded the salary cap and got some fine that wasn't even all that enormous? If you're if you're Bob Young, if you're the Ticats, it's been this long, you're hosting the Grey Cup, you've got a possibility to get Bo Levi-Mitchell. I mean, it may be a little smarmy, but do you, do you maybe think, what the heck, let's just... Let's just blow the salary cap, pay the fine, but win this bloody thing. I think it's worth it because you're going to make back some dough by hosting. Right? The league does make money, but the Tiger Cats are certainly, if you win and win at home, um, there was definitely a financial boom from the Tiger Cats having the Grey Cup here just two years ago. Um, but imagine if you win, it's all worth it. In my opinion, I mean, I can't say that the organization are thinking the same way. I can't think the organization, I can't speak to the organization willing to be fined. But uh, I, in my opinion, why not? I mean, if, satisfy, it, look, I think if you satisfy if, your fan base. And then you think, about, think about all the marketing that you can do as Grey Cup champions in a place like Hamilton that, that, that really, really cares about it. Can you imagine how many shirts we're going to see in town? Uh, with, with, you know, Grey Cup winners, hats. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's not my money. It's not my money. It's not your money. It's Bob Young's money. And, and you know, yep. he's lost from all, by all accounts, he's lost a lot of money on this team over the years, mm-hmm. trying to get it up to the point where it's break even at least. So I don't know how much appetite he has to lose X number of dollars again. Well, but uh, Can uh, I say this, Scott? Yeah, of course. Sorry, just, just, just on that exact point that what you're saying there, Go even further back, and I'm talking about the Bob Young era as well, too. They, think about the money they threw Jason Moss and even more Casey Printers. Yeah. The team wasn't even that good. Right? The team wasn't that good. They were going to build around these guys. You've got a team right now that's gone to two out of the last three Grey Cups that, in my opinion, can't compete for a Grey Cup. So Can or can't? Can. They can. can yes, okay. Where, can. Where, where's yeah. those teams... They weren't even close. They were horrible. You've got a coach in place, coaches in place, the assistant assistants and positional coaches in place, and really most of the roster, again, based on free agency in February, that are going to be back here. I think it's a risky take. Yeah, I, my, my only concern, and I mean, I, I would assume that they've done their due diligence before they made the trade to get his rights. My only concern is, and you alluded to it, that Bo Mitchell lost his job in Calgary and didn't play a lot last year and has had some injuries over the last few years. My only concern is, do you pay this guy a fortune? Do you believe that he's worth the fortune, is the way of saying it. Do you, do you, if you're going to do it, are you sure if you're going to potentially squeeze yourself in some other position, are you sure that he is the guy who is worth that sacrifice? And if he is, you know what? It's a CFL. He's your quarterback. Yeah. If you're not sure, boy, that is a big risk. Well, I wonder if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were thinking the same thing. A yes. guy that, you know, a Patriots team that had started to fade away, 
Um, maybe, you know, some other guys, the, the coach kind of looking at other quarterbacks, maybe drafting other quarterbacks. And then, you know, the part, the, 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 the parting of the ways, right? For the veteran from, you know, the championship teams, right? That all kind of Big faded comparison. away. And then, and then Brady was reborn in one season and brings a team a Super Bowl championship. I think that's a really good comparison, actually. I mean, I know it's Tom Brady and he's unique in that he's, there's only one Tom Brady, but, I think that's actually a pretty fair comparison, and it's it's a it's an interesting one. Uh, you wonder, I, I, you wonder what would have how that would have looked. Now, we, you know, it, we're revisioning we're, it's revisionist history. But if Tom Brady had not won a Super Bowl, if he'd come there and not played well, he, it would have probably looked ridiculous. But he did, but he did. He found his mojo and he took them right to the championship. I think with any signing, any free agent signing, there's a, a certain amount of risk. But I think that Bo Levi, I can't tell you this right off the top of my hands, but uh, off the, of my head, but I'm willing to put my reputation on the line that he has the best, if not top three win percentage of all time as a quarterback in the Canadian Football League as a starting quarterback. He's up there. Yeah, he's up there. At one time, it was number one. I, I don't know if it's for still a long there. time. Yeah. Uh, okay, got to do it. No, speaking of Hamilton and athletes, there is a guy who has a connection. He's you know these days he wouldn't be known as being the Hamilton connection, but PK Subban, once upon a time, played here, played for the Hamilton Bulldogs. He uh, he got his start in a lot of ways professionally here before going up to the Canadians. It's interesting to me the Montreal Canadians are having PK Subban night on Thursday. He's retired now. Um, they're bringing him back on Thursday night for a. To, to honor him at the Bell Center. Are you surprised that that not even necessarily that they're going to honor P.K. Subban, are you surprised they're doing it so soon while there are still guys on the roster who probably played with him? <laughs> his, his retirement certainly came earlier than most expected. And I think there was probably, especially as a free agent and what his expectations were in terms of being paid were maybe higher than what some possible interested teams were, 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 were looking to pay him. So his retirement certainly does come early, Scott. I think there was something about him and his charisma and his time in Montreal, the fact that even now in retirement says that, you know, of all the teams he played for, Montreal is his home. I think there is some affection between the city and, 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 and the player. And certainly the, the charitable contributions that he made to the children's hospital there, this, this kind of does make sense for me. And it comes at a time where the Habs are also not a very good team. And, and you know, any opportunity to celebrate the logo with someone that was a proud Canadian, probably good timing on doing this. See, that's exactly the reason I would have waited. What you're saying is you do it because they need something to feel good about. I, I don't, I don't dispute having a PK Subban night. However, they're going to honor him. I would have waited until first of all, he's only 33. Uh, I would have waited until they are competitive again and things are feeling good around Montreal, and also that there's just you know a little more distance because when he left, it was not all smiles and chuckles. It was not all good feelings when he left. Uh, I might have, I would have done it, but I might have waited four or five years from now. But you know what? Uh, it's um, we'll see. I I don't think there's anybody in Montreal who's going to go to this game who's not going to acknowledge him kindly. I don't I don't see this as one of those guys where even though he left 
with some controversy. I don't think anyone's going to boo him or feel bad. No. I mean, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be good. I, I would have waited, though. You know, he's also got some interesting ties with, you know, some of the legendary Canadians as well, too. Um, oh, my goodness, I'm blanking out. Um, he, he shared a real special relationship. Oh, my goodness. Uh, name a couple of legendary Canadians, one that probably passed about five years ago. Uh, his body was put in state. Guy? Uh, Not Beliveau. Beliveau. Oh, Jean Beliveau. John Bellevue, I believe his his wife is still alive, and that's for whatever right. reason, yes. that she his liked wife, him. They got along. He liked him, and his and so did his wife. They did many things together, and I cannot believe that she's she's got to be getting close to you know that time, too. And and maybe there's something there too, um, you know, because there was some there was a really interesting relationship there that you know you just don't see normally with players of of, of you know eras long gone by and players of today. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, let's hope that it is. Um, and it will be, I mean, I was going to say, let's hope it's upbeat because I mean, the last thing in an NHL team that was a night to honor someone um, was the Boreas Alming night in Toronto. And while oh. that was, um, you know, good, they did it. Boy, that was rough. I mean, that was a, that was a difficult night. Let, let's, you know, th- this one will be, much more upbeat than that one was, obviously. I mean, sure. by definition, it will be. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, you know, PK, I, I'd love to see at some point, I, I'd love to see one of the things that we don't have in Hamilton, that, that, that the, if I'll give one thing that I'd love to see the Hamilton Bulldogs do a little more, it is to honor their their past grades. If you go around to different OHL or AHL arenas, Great you will point. often see you know, retired numbers or just signed like banners up for players, the greats who were there. That, that that happened for a while. There used to be banners hanging at First Ontario Centre for some of the players, and I don't think they're there anymore. I, at least I haven't noticed them. And that, that to me would be something that, I mean, one of, Bubba, one of my all-time biggest bugaboos ever when we're talking about this stuff, there is nothing in public display at First Ontario Centre marking the fact that it was the site of Gretzky to Lemieux in the 87 Canada Cup. How is there nothing in that arena when people come in marking that? It was one of the top three goals in Canadian hockey history, probably. Top five, yeah, probably top three. Absolutely. And nothing. Top three. Nothing. I mean, we, we don't do a good job at remembering our history and honoring it, and that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but maybe down the you road... Know, well, you know, I know you know Michael and Lauer well, and, and, and I think maybe going into the new building, the new facility that, you know, I guess will be built and I get what's completed and I, I'm going to estimate three years from now, maybe the, the two things you just discussed there is that on the site of this arena, this happened, and, the, and yes, a reminder of bringing back players, you know, and I, I'll include the AHL version of the Bulldogs as well, too. Yes. How yes. awesome would it be to bring back the likes of of Carey Price and PK Subban, and you know I'll even go even deeper. Even remember AJ Baines? Of course, scored the winning goal for the Calder Cup. <laughs> an amazing, like an amazing moment. I mean, I don't even know what he's doing, but it'd be nice to you know to see him again because um, he's he, a, he, a guy that wanted to be in Hamilton. Yeah, he's working as a real estate agent in BC in the Vancouver area now. 
There you go. And, um, there you go. And, right? and, and I mean, and, and you can go down like that, that team and not to like get too deep in the weeds here, but like there are so many guys that went on to play in the NHL. AJ Bain scored the winning goal shorthanded for the 2007 Calder Cup, but on a pass from on a two on one, he had a pass from Max Lapierre who went on and played years in That's the right. NHL. That's um, right. You know, you had, uh, as I say, Carey Price, but you had, I mean, you had all kinds of other guys who played. Halak. Yaroslav Halak. I mean, Yaro Halak, de- yep. destroyed the record books for, for his play here in Hamilton. And and funny story again about this, Yaro Halak, the reason Carey Price, or one of the reasons Carey Price played here is because the Canadians allowed Halak to go to the World Championships and leave the Bulldogs, opening the door for Carey Price to come. So... You know, it's um, it, it would. I'd love to. I'd love to see a little more of of that. But uh, good for the Canadians for doing the PK Subban thing. I, as I say, I would have done it a little later, but good for them for doing it anyway. Hey, uh, by the way, everyone okay over at CHCAC? I hear there was big news today. You know, I wasn't around, and and so a lot of this comes from conversations of me being of talking to people when I when I came in today. But I could see the emails. I got a got a I got a text actually from. And Shelly Marriage, um, you know, our weather specialists, and just basically telling, you know, have you seen the email? And I was like, Can no. And, you know, you know, based on THH's history, <laughs> I, have you seen the email? Gets me very worried, right? <laughs> 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 you had a little humor there. But, yes. um, they, you know, and seeing this, you know, a threat of that proportion. And remember, this wasn't something started by you know, CHCH, this was the police informing us. Let me read, let me just read the statement that went out from Greg O'Brien. If people don't know what we're talking about, the CHCH news director, an unknown person reported a bomb threat to Hamilton police Wednesday morning towards the CHCH building. Police considered it a credible threat. So they notified CHCH staff evacuated the building at 9 a.m. The emergency response unit was deployed to scour the building. Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's frightening. You know, you know what really made me concerned is when I got a later email saying that this, you know, of what happened, the, everyone's to be, you know, to evacuate, blah blah blah. But an hour later, another email came out talking about how Innovation Drive, the street that the CHCH is on, has been shut down by the police. Then I got really concerned. I'm, right? I'm. It must have been something Tim Boland said this morning. That guy's always getting you guys in trouble. <laughs> 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 amazingly, amazingly, all of this happened immediately after the conclusion of the morning show. So, you know, it, it, it was a, a bizarre, bizarre situation. That is Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Glad all is well. Glad everyone is okay. Um, listen, can appreciate I see, you doing can this I today. See one quick thing there's Of course, about. yeah. You know, we talk about bragging about ourselves and Hamilton athletes. Can I tell people, and, and there's good reason for this, to get to the NBA.com and start filling up that ballot box, so this way Shay Gildas-Alexander gets to the All-Star game as a starter, there's a guy that's third in the league, third in the NBA in scoring. And I, I, I feel like he still doesn't get enough love, not only in the country, but even in our own city. Yeah, it's a, it is a it is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable thing that a Hamilton guy is doing that, and you're right, it kind of... Uh, flies under the radar for sure. I don't think it flies under the radar for those who are basketball fans, but um, for a lot of people who are just casual, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a very good suggestion. Listen, got to let you run, but uh, always appreciate right. you doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. A pleasure, always. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.